Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Why do we love the beach? Very good question. That is a great question. You know, we talk about it a lot. We do. We've dedicated a lot of a lot of time yapping about that on this show. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. We do seem to like it. It's the height of summer. Uh, we're setting uh, tourism beach records at the beaches in Florida and uh, around the country. Uh, follow it in Coastal News today. It's absolutely the truth for free. And we're all go and we're all going to the beach. And uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting question. What makes us want to do it? Well, it is, and uh, it's a question we like to turn to some experts to help us answer. I mean, you and I can go for hours, <laughs> and we often do. But, you know. Both on air and off air. Yeah, uh, that's right. But it's always beneficial to get a scholar, a real thinker on board mm -hmm. uh, the show to help us uh, ponder these deeper questions yeah. a little bit more precisely. Yeah. And today we've got a great historical look at this question. We do indeed. Today we're going to have on the show... Uh, uh, Roy Ritchie, uh, Senior Research Associate at the famed Huntington Library, which is in San Marino, California. The Huntington Library Art Museum and Botanical Garden is an extraordinary uh, institution. Beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, Roy's going to be joining us from Pasadena, California. He's the former director of research at the Huntington Library. And comes from a long academic background and a historian and has written an amazing book and which is the subject of this show, The Lure of the Beach of Global History. It's from the University of California Press, published in 2021, described in the jacket as a sweeping history of the ways the beach has shaped us and how we reshaped our beaches. That's pretty good, Tyler. Well, it, we're going to have a sweeping podcast to cover this sweeping history uh, <laughs> yeah. and really looking forward to talking to Roy about, goodness, we're going to start way back and work our way forward. Yeah. But before we do, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, uh, Roy... Thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast. We're excited to talk to you and, and learn more about this amazing book that just came out. I'm happy to be here. Well, Roy, The Lure of the Beach, University of California Press. This is a bold statement in the jacket, a sweeping history of the ways the beach has shaped us and how we reshaped our beaches. I'm, I'm interested in how the beach has shaped us. Well, I'm interested, too. And uh, before we get into the subject matter of the book, though, Roy, I'm really interested in getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how you came to ultimately write this book now? Um, I, well, my whole history would be that I was born in Scotland, 
place where the beaches are okay and the water's really cold. Yeah. So I wasn't much attracted to beaches when I was very young, but my family went first to Canada and ended up here in Southern California when I was a teenager. And at that point, I started going to the beach quite regularly and became a body surfer. Um, then I always loved history. I can't tell you that there was this book or that. I just kept reading and reading and reading. Ended up getting a PhD at UCLA, uh, then going down to San Diego, to the University of California, San Diego, which is close to a lot of really great beaches. Lived in a small town called Del Mar. I, by training, was really an early Americanist, and so the bulk of my work has really dealt with other issues. I am best known for a book I did on piracy, Captain Kidd and the War Against the Pirates. And it wasn't really, yes, I was always interested in the beach and what was going on and how they came about. But as director of research, I was called on to give lectures all the time. And I, uh, frankly, I got sick and tired pretty early giving talks about pirates. And I finally ended up giving one talk that was titled, This is My Last Pirate Talk. And indeed it was. So I was always looking around for other things to talk about, and I bumped into a book that had a little bit about uh, uh, beach history. And I thought, aha, maybe there's a lecture here. So I went and did a lecture, and uh, that's where it all started. And out of that uh, was the association with the University of California Press. And I guess I should say that my legal name is Robert C. Ritchie. And that's, if you were looking to find the book, uh, you find it under Robert, not Roy, but uh, I had to be named Robert after my f- grandfather, but my mother really wanted to call me Roy. So there's a little family history you probably don't need. Anyway, a compromise. Uh, after the, um, uh, I really did this book in a sense after I retired. I agreed to do it first just as a picture book, but as I got into it more and more, I became fascinated. It was always a matter of what took people to the beach. Uh, what did they do once they got there and how did that evolve over time? And that became you know, my first retirement project. And you know, it's, I've, I had a lot of fun writing the book. It was good to go back into the past in a very different way than I've done before. But also to bring it all the way forward to contemporary issues like access and uh, rising seawater levels, which are not something who has spent his life teaching and writing about early America, but never going past 1800. So a lot of this is very, very new for me. And at times I had to take out, you know, what did I know about locomotives and trains and the way in which the railway system was built? I had to go and learn, and that was part of the fascination of doing the book, because every now and then I just have to stop. What is this? I don't know anything about this, so I've got to go find out. So in the end, it turned out to be The Lure of the Beach, A Global History. Well, it's uh, it's truly a massive undertaking, and I really appreciate that you ponied up uh, to the idea and uh, we're going to have a great time talking about it. But I cannot let pass your early story here. Uh, born in Scotland, uh, comes to uh, Canada, 
and then to California. How old were you when you arrived in Southern California? What was that like uh, with your, I assume you were with your folks? Uh, yeah, it was Scots. a family move. Yeah, yeah. What, tell, tell, tell us a little bit about what that was like culturally. What, when are we talking about? Uh, what, as, a, as a historian, uh, how do you look back on, on that transition in your life? Uh, it, you know, California was very different from Canada. You know, first of all, the winters weren't there. And, you know, California, the beach during the summer is absolutely terrific when the water's warm. But the problem, of course, is the rest of the year, there's a cold current. So going to the beach ended up being seasonal, unless you really wanted to make the commitment to be a surfer, get a bodysuit, you know, go the whole way. Otherwise, you know, but nonetheless, the ability to go to the beach all summer uh, have a boogie board, a set of fins, and go, you know, go have fun. And I have to say, it was also the era of the Beach Boys, Jan and Dean, uh, the whole music scene, and then, you know, coming with that, uh, Gidget, uh, then the various uh, beat there. There's some 26 Beach movies that were all turned out fairly quickly. They're not great monuments to filmmaking. Uh, but it was all part of the general culture where Southern California was sort of raised nationally in the consciousness of a lot of young people because, you know, along with the surfers, who had a particular style of dress, um, uh, along with a, that with a lifestyle of living at the beach and doing what you want when you wanted to do it. Uh, and so it was enormously attractive to a lot of young people and being part of that scene in Southern California made it even more intense uh, so that, you know, when you went to see movies like The Endless Summer, um, you know, that was, you know, that was the first breakout surfing movie. And it, it, was, it was just a time if you were in Southern California with all of this going on with surfing, with beaches, with music, with clothing, and a big national scene that, California, Southern California was becoming in a way an iconic beach scene in the way that the Riviera would be an iconic beach scene in a very different way. So it was exciting. It was great to be young uh, in Southern California. Man, I, I uh, as a fellow uh, Southern California kid, ah. but, you know, from my childhood was the uh 1990s very different oh. we didn't have woodies with surfboards on them we had you know uh, uh suburbans and toyota land cruisers and, right. and suvs right. but uh similar uh reflections of course i was still listening to that 60s uh, beach boys music when i was going to the beach all those years later um but you're you're totally right i've, I've got to ask what was it like when you would uh, go back to Scotland and communicate with your your old family back there. Uh, would they would they ask you like, is it true about California? I mean, was it iconicized to them as well? Was this a global phenomenon? I uh, I didn't go back as much. My mother and sister did, but I I did not go back to Scotland until much later when uh, I started making research trips mostly to London to do my other work uh, that I was doing, because uh, I was having to go through the ranks at the University of California, where it's publish or perish. Um, and so I was 
visiting Scotland much, much later than this period. And by then, it wasn't so much a matter of talking about it. But no, people, uh, you know, beaches are not great. A lot of the famous beaches in England are shingle. And once you start, you know, talking to people about going to the beach and saying, well, you know, it's sunny, it's sand, uh, it's great stuff. And, you know, you're going down to Brighton and people are lying around on shingle. And you think, wow, I would do this on a bed. Uh, you moved up you know. in the beach world. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, you know, you said that it was a fascinating book to research, that uh, there was a lot to learn. Um, what was the most interesting or, or surprising thing that you learned in doing The Lure of the Beach? You know, there are surprises here and there, but probably the big one was the beach resorts. In other words, I mean, people have gone to the beach forever, but never in an organized way. And they would go maybe to dip once and that would be it. Uh, but beach resorts rise in, in the 1730s in England. It's just Brighton, Margate, Scarborough, all start up just about the same time. And the first image we have of people going to the beach is in uh, 1735. Hmm. And what was driving people to do this? And rather than just accepting that people did it, I went back and started reading a lot of diaries, travel journals, uh, and there's a lot of that that's been published, and I had also access to manuscript stuff. Uh, so that, why did they do it? I mean, and the fact is, it was not for the same reasons you and I might have done it, to go to the beach and have fun. It was therapeutic. There was a group of doctors in the early 18th century who wrote uh, extensively about cold water. And remember, this is a little ice age, so the water is cold. Uh, cold water is very good for you, and then went on to say what cold salt water is really therapeutic. And so people were not going to the beach to do what you and I did, uh, have fun in the surf. They went to be just sort of dipped in the water to get the benefit of the water washing over your whole body. You had to be head down uh, three times, and then you came back out of the water. That was it. Huh. Some men wow. might have gone in to swim, but they still, most men went in just to be dipped and then to come back out. So it's therapeutic and it's a very different sensibility. And yet you read people's diaries and travel journals and they're saying that, well, I went to Brighton and I you know, underwent the treatment. I was there for two weeks, went in every day. I feel so much better because of it. I doubt that, you know, it was because their health was cured by the going to the beach, but just the, the very experience of going to the beach in the water, sea air is always better than, you know, the air in London, for instance, so that you would come away feeling better. Uh, but the doctors very soon, as people start going, claim, oh, cures. You know, that there's hardly anything in the ad when you read these accounts of the doctors that can't be cured by uh, saltwater immersion. So, and also, I mean, they also drank the saltwater, which I couldn't stand myself, but they uh, push this 
And so bit by bit by bit, yes, there's Margate, then there's Ramsgate, there's Brighton, you know, there's other places down in Devon. One by one, you know, resorts are popping up all over the place. And then as this sort of culture of therapeutics gets broadcast into Europe, sure enough, in the north of France, in the Baltic, um, in the North Sea, those beaches also start opening huh. up with people going into them. Let me ask you a question there, uh, because this is, you know, we're talking about the UK here. Uh, and are you saying that uh, that the appeal of the beach early on, we're talking about 1730s, I think he said, uh, was a bit of quackery? This was <laughs> This was a medical... This was pitched. Was anybody making money off of this particular exercise uh, of health care by immersion? Doctors and- who spend the summer at the beach providing advice to people who are there. Uh, you have to remember, this is the time that does not have all of the therapy, you know, the pharmacopoeia, everything that we have now. I mean, yeah, they right. basically had herbal medicine. Hospitals were essentially places you went to die. And there's already a culture of going to spas. These are you know, mineral water, hot or cold mineral water spas all over Europe and England. And the most famous one in England is Bath. And okay. you know, what, what resources do you have to get well when it's not till the very end of the century that Digitalis comes along to help with heart treatments? Otherwise, yes, there are herbs that are good for you, will help you, you know, do various things. But nonetheless, it's a very slight uh, medical culture that really, you know, if something comes along like going to the beach where you can go and have fun and also go to the beach and be cured, why that's as good as anything else you're going to get treatment with. Well, uh, this is this is we're already into it, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking about uh, we're we're answering some questions that uh, Roy you you posit in your introduction. I think it's worth just framing this up so that we can understand kind of the the questions that you were asking as you were studying this, which are: Did people in the past go to the beach for the same reasons I did? You did, Roy. And uh, this book is really about, as you say, your search for the answers to that question. Uh, why did people go to the beach and what did they do there? And um, one of the things that I found to be just very interesting, Peter, believe it or not, in all of our uh, research and talking about the beach, I had never heard of these ancient prehistoric no. human and pre-human footprints Roy, would you talk us through some of these early sites of human beach activity or pre-human beach activity? Sure. Um, uh, paleontologists, archaeologists look for footprints that have been discovered here and there in Kenya, Ethiopia, elsewhere. And uh, two of the places where very, very early, if Homo sapiens really were a group that evolved in Botswana in an area of large lakes and uh, abundant uh, plant and animal life. 
that dries up and so they move on and a significant group of early homo sapiens about a hundred years thousand years ago wandered down to south africa and there are two places in south africa where they have discovered footprints of people who obviously were at the beach there's no two ways about it why would they go there well bill it's it's cooler in the summer uh you know, they may have gone in the water, but the water can be slightly scary because you don't know what's in there, and there's some bad things in there. <laughs> and still are the, the, there's also a food supply of whether it's oysters or fish or whatever. It's an alternative to your constant diet that you get inland. And of course, they would only go down to the beach usually in the warm weather, then they retreat back because there can be really bad storms even in South Africa that sweep along the beaches. Um, it's, you know, but again, it's fascinating to see these footprints. Neither one of these sets is very large. The people were not very big, uh, but there they are at the beach. And then there was a report really last summer of a group of Neanderthals and a lot, in this case, they've got a lot of footprints at a beach in Normandy in the north of France. And, you know, again, their footprints are of different sizes, so it's obvious that there are families and you can just imagine families cavorting at the beach and having fun. That's, uh, you know, a wonderful thing to think about. The Neanderthals are going to the beach to have fun. So the whole business of going to the beach, you know, has a long history. The Romans went to a resort at Baye in the Bay of Naples, very famous place. Yes. Um, then, you know, the beach sort of goes out of favor because in, in the Christian world, the Great Flood is something that's very real and, you know, swept uh, the landscape. And then as it retreated back into the sea, took with it tons and tons of detritus that sunk down to the abyss and in the abyss all these creatures emerge uh big scary creatures and they're the ones we see occupying the corners of maps uh you know of the ocean and the corners of maps even of you know just showing okay this is where the sea begins here's a monster well <laughs> do you want to go into the sea with all those monsters there it's not to say that it would given up wholly, but it's not terribly attractive to go to the beach, let's say. You can go to the beach, but do you really want to go into the water? Um, and so, yes, we know that various people dabbled and continued on, but the beach resorts had come along in the 1730, or the, really the rise of the modern beach, the one that we would all in some way recognize. Well, I do, can we... Uh... Well, first of all, a couple comments on these ancient uh, footprints. Uh, I don't even know if ancient's the right word. I mean, these are just very old. But, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about is just moving around. Uh, it probably, the beach probably was one back in a, land, in a time before roads, before any sort of marked trail or, or whatever. I imagine that the beach was one of the most uh, effective ways to travel around the landscape and sure. get, get around. And I know here in uh, here in Texas now this brings us forward. Uh, 
about a hundred thousand, hundred, a hundred and two thousand years. But, uh, you know, we have a rule called the open beaches act. And I understand Peter, that there's yeah. some precedent of this act yeah. in the transportation, uh, right of way that historically existed here in Texas, because if you wanted to like move yeah. your wagon and your horse, you, you couldn't simply like just go through the land. It would, it would take forever. It would be impossible. You get rutted, you'd break your <laughs> wheels you you die. It was it was too challenging. So the beach, I have to imagine historically. This is why it's so cool to see those footprints. I mean, truly, uh, an inspiring thing to contemplate. But that these that our ancient ancestors here were walking around on the beach, using the space to gather food and probably using the space to get around as well. Yeah, I you know well again. Depends on how heavy the sand is, mm -hmm. but no, it would be easier to get around. But in the end, you always turn back inland because there's simply more to eat there. You know, you, you're not so directly exposed to really bad weather. Um, you know, and in time, as people begin to develop agriculture, which comes much, 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 much later, you're not going to do that at the beach. You're going to do it inland. But the vast majority of people live inland and, you know, make their world there. Not many people go to the beach. You can get these diaries even in the 18th century where people will, for the very first time, go to the beach and see the sea and are just dumbstruck that there's this enormous, vast body of water restless always in movement and if you have lived all of your life you know in a small town or village in in the middle of well, let's just say england to stay there and suddenly you're confronted by the sea it is beyond experience it and it can be frightening i mean you know some people there's one woman who's dumbstruck for 24 hours she can't talk She's just <laughs> totally overwhelmed by the experience of seeing the vastness of yeah. the sea. So, you know, that's also there. Um, Fascinating stuff. Now, uh, you mentioned um, the Romans and uh, they kind of uh, you you credit them with kind of I don't want to say inventing the beach resort because that comes later, but certainly in developing a a uh, a taste for recreating near the shore could you uh, expand on that yeah um starting about 200 uh before the common era when rome starts to expand and there's considerable wealth flowing into rome uh the beginning of building of an empire uh they start not just having villas inland where of course it's agriculture and that's where real money is but going to places where they don't have to think about anything if you go to the estate you got to think about well how are the peasants doing well not the peasants <laughs> slaves really um the workers and they start going down uh, you know to, uh, the current roman beach is at ostia but it's not a very good beach but going down south from there they started to build villas on the sea a place to go, get away from the summer heat in Rome, very nice. But 
they're pirates and the pirates raid up and down the coast and the next thing you know you can be you know bunch of guys wandering around with swords in your house so in the end they go down to the bay of naples and the bay of naples is first of all a big roman naval base and a big shipping scene so that there's constant ships in movement and pirates don't go there particularly with the roman navy there so they can tuck very safely into a place called baye which uh, is a very, very considerable place. Anybody who's anybody in the Roman Empire goes to Baye in April after the Senate comes to an end, session's over, before the beginning of the summer, you go down to Baye. Hmm. Emperors, senators, bankers, big-time merchant players, you name it. And they build villas, and they're, you know, the. There are temples. In fact, the, the, the second the, biggest the, dome ever created in Rome by Romans, I say, is at Baie. Now, that's a very active region. You know, tectonically, Vesuvius is the biggest uh, example of that there. But there are a lot of fissures and places where the water, hot water burbles up and whatnot. So off and on over the centuries things went wrong so the a good deal of baie is now underwater tilted underwater and then a lot of the other places have been overrun by modern development i mean there is an archaeological scene but baie's reputation is real everybody goes there to play and the romans knew how to play and anybody well particularly stoics who like Sene Seneca or Cato, who end up wandering down to Baye, run right away in the other direction because it is really a place of great eroticism, and it's you know a place that drives people uh, to run if they're good Stoics because this is not a place you want to have your reputation as a gentleman sullied. Hmm. So it's back to Naples. Get. Get away from Baye. It, it builds a really big reputation as being erotic, decadent. When does, not, so, not a bad place, actually, you would no, think. But, no, it's, uh, yeah. there's a bit of a history for that. Uh, so what do you think? Was uh, Baye the, uh, uh, is Palm Springs the Baye of today? <laughs> um, we got Mar-a-Lago. We got a president there. We got a former emperor. He's very much emperor-like. I think yeah, he sees himself uh, as an emperor. And there's a lot of the wealthy and the well-to-do along the shoreline in southern Florida. How would you compare the two? Well, again, if you're, you know, at this point, these beaches are very aristocratic and upper class. And that will be true even in England for a long while. They're the only people who get holidays and have the money to go and build villas and have a good time elsewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, people go to have a good time, whether it's Baye or Miami Beach. And, uh, you know, in, in Roman times, it was just plain nudity. Men did not wear bathing costumes. Uh, nowadays, you know, bathing costumes, male and female, uh, don't leave a hell of a lot to the imagination in some no. places. And certainly, if we're thinking about spring break, where you've got tens of thousands of drunk, 
horny 18-year-olds. <laughs> yes, is that eroticism the, well, let me lives add, at the beach. <laughs> that's true. So you've talked about a couple of different themes here. You talk about the therapeutic attraction yeah. of in the mid-18th century, where we're going because it believed, it believed to be healthy. It kind of falls in line with mineral baths and hot springs, which, as you say, were always kind of therapeutic sites uh, all over the world kind of thing. Um, and then we've got this thread of hedonism that sort of filters into the coastal area. Uh, and uh, the Romans were having fun at the beach. Then we go to the therapeutic era. And maybe now, Tyler, we're back to we go to the beach to have fun. Um, well, I actually think, you know, I, I the therapeutic angle really resonates with me. Yeah, it's true. It really does. Yeah. I, I have to say, when I was a kid, uh, my mom... And basically, it was, I don't want to call it a wives' tale. It's probably not an appropriate term these days, but it was widely <laughs> accepted in, in my, among the adults that supervised me that if you had a cut, you, it was good to swim in the ocean because yeah, yeah, it yeah. would expedite the healing process. And I, can't, I don't have any, like, this is not yeah. a scientific thing. Is that thing. true, do you think? I don't I know. Think, I think it is. I mean, well, let's just say in medicine, in contemporary medicine, people infection is it can be oh, yeah. uh fought using you know a some sort of salt water bath sure, the epsom salt bath correct so i i feel like there is probably some connection there but the 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 element of cold water the salt water the way your skin feels when you get out yeah i do think yeah, in think this modern in this modern era where we have lots of chemicals that we put on our bodies uh in you know to bathe that there is something really really truly uh, let's just at least say therapeutic feeling yeah about uh the ocean to this day and i actually think that that's on the rise um but the big the big difference is i ain't going any dipping machine (laughs) i want to swim i want to i want to play in the waves too yeah. Now, Dr. Ritchie, I'm going to say Dr. Ritchie in this question, because is there any evidence that uh, wounds are healed better after immersion in seawater? Uh, yes, salt water is curative in that regard. Uh, you know, if you were lashed, for instance, on a boat, uh, a sailor in the Navy, they would pour salt water over you, and that does, huh. you know, cut down. Okay. Um, bacteria and other things in the wound. And so, yes, it is curative. I hmm. mean, again, their thing is that it's curing far more than just a, a nick in your skin. Right. Um, and that's, there are books still being written at the end of the 19th century, praising salt water, it's curative. So it stays on, although in the 19th century, things really begin to evolve and change. Tell us about that. So we, we've gone through this therapeutic uh, idea. What's starting to happen in the, uh, in the 19th century and into the 20th century? Um, well, a couple things. One of them, uh, with the coming of the railways in the 1840s, more people can get to the beach. It's no longer just an, a, a, an aristocratic privilege. Upper middle class, professional people, and even workers, you know, because the train companies learn that they can run a special train on Sunday and people will get on and go off to the beach. And quite often it's whole communities that will go together, again, thinking of England. 
But, you know, the process then is that more and more people are going to the beach and they're looking for more and more things to do early on. It's very much a Jane Austen culture. Once you, you once you dip, you come out of the water, you got another 23 hours. You sleep for some of them, eat for some of them, but how do you entertain yourself? And that's the whole assembly room scene, very aristocratic, dancing, gambling, eating in the assembly rooms. It's quite the thing. Um, as more and more people are coming to the beach, entertainment evolves uh, slowly but surely. You get music halls, dance halls, these are all an aspect of popular culture, and that's pretty much everywhere on the continent in North America. And then slowly but surely, recreation. You know, in the 1830s, literature saying men should learn how to swim. It's good for you. It's wonderful exercise. It's the 1860s before women are going to be um, told, look, you've got to get out there in the water and swim. Well, given that yeah, these are women who are, are extremely modest and who wear, if you look at the costumes worn by women in the 19th century, they go from the neck to the ankle and they cover up pretty much everything in between. So that, yes, swimming's okay, but how do you do that? Well, the bathing costume has to evolve and it evolves first by introducing pants, they're called Persian pants, so that your legs are free and not under a heavy costume. And you still have to wear a dress that comes down to your knees. That will slowly but surely rise up into mid-thigh. The crotch is always a very delicate area in the 19th century. Nothing can rise above that. So that women, if they can't swim, at least they can go out and you can see you know, there are photographs, the beach resorts will put phone poles or look like phone poles into the water and put heavy rope. So you could, you know, go out and jump up and down in the wave and have a good time. Um, you know, do something other than just go dip and come back out again. So the recreational scene is changing. The entertainment scene is changing. And by the end of the 19th century, with the coming of electricity, you get Coney Island. Coney Island has got a nice beach. Hmm. But uh, what is, makes Coney Island famous everywhere are the amusement parks that are built at Coney Island with all kinds of rides, Ferris wheels, Dodge, you name it, everything that you can think of that we have in our pretty much everything we think of. Uh, they have there then. And so when was Coney uh, Island becomes a particular uh, here millions of people go then to the beach at Coney Island. They may stand around on the beach. They may not go in the water, but they're at the beach and that full for entertainment format spreads all over the place. Hmm. When was Coney Island opened? The sort of the uh the carnival part of it, the park part of it. Oh, it's the 1890s. 1890s. So we're, we're also dealing with the era of the, in of the industrialization and factory workers and dense city populations and people yep. escaping from the heat of the city and the commotion of the city to the freedom of the water. Is that, is that kind of an attribute around the world? It, were beach resorts sort of affiliated with that at that point? Yeah, I mean, obviously, 
people have to be able to afford to get to the beach and then stay at the beach. Yeah. And it's quite a long while. I mean, it comes first in England and France where people have paid holidays because you can't afford to go to the beach otherwise unless you save all year round and then spend that money going to the beach. And people do that. I mean, they will go to the beach for a week, stay in a boarding house just to have that experience. It becomes something one should do if one is middle class. Uh, aristocrats continue to go to the beach, but they'll go to different places. So you have Atlantic City, uh, other beaches in the New Jersey Shore, Cape May, all get hooked up to the railway. More and more people are coming <laughs> and you know, looking to entertain themselves in very different ways and recreational. People bring their bicycles, they go bike riding. Now um, it's starting you know, it's to just, get, a, um, get to be the modern. Yeah, you're beach getting closer is. and closer all the time to the modern world. Now, this is a surprising thing, Tyler, but I was looking through the Washington Post today. There is a letter to Miss Manners in which a young woman who was going on vacation with her very conservative relatives huh. have sent her an email asking that she buy a bathing dress and included a URL where she would go to buy these this modest beachwear, and uh, they called it a bathing bathing dress, and it has long sleeves, a long skirt, and swimming leggings. So apparently, this notion of conservative beach dress is still alive in America today. Yeah, absolutely, particularly among. Uh, you know, our Muslim beachgoers who uh, I have seen it here in, in Austin. It's not uncommon to see a full body uh, beach or I should say swim. Is swim costume the bathing costume? Is that the appropriate <laughs> word? Right? Yeah, yeah, rather than a swimsuit. I mean, you know, uh, what's evolved out of that is called the burkini. The burkini. Which is a costume Muslim women wear from the neck to the ankles, mm. it covers everything. I mean, the, the big transition in bathing suits for most women comes in the early 20th century where you, you've got more and more what we would call the tank suit. You know, the Janssen tank suit comes, mm. oh, yeah, the starts one around your shoulders yeah. and uh, you know, mid thigh. That allows you to swim, a lot of body motion, and then at the same time as the suit is becoming, in a sense, shorter and shorter, heliotherapy is coming out whereby it's good to get a suntan. This is at the beginning of uh, heliotherapy. The sun is very, very often evoked as uh, a curative thing rather than something uh, that we identify as not so good. Um, but you know, it's used to, heliotherapy is used to cure people who have conditions of the lungs that go up in the mountains, right. they lie out. Um, Another medical kind of therapeutic yeah. uh, thought process when you get yeah. close to the water. And so, you know, the bathing suit gets shorter and shorter, becomes an issue in the 60s, well, the bikini in France in the 19, late 1940s. Is really a very radical thing. Yeah, uh, totally not accepted radical. in America for quite some time. You look at the beach movies in the 1920s; those are two-piece suits. 
but they come up over the belly button in both men and women. The belly button is regarded as an erotic sign. And so it has to be covered. Well, that, of course, has evolved in our time away from anywhere yeah. near the belly button. Cher, Cher claims, so um, uh, you know, Cher had a, had a, uh, had a, who's Cher? Cher. Yeah. The singer. The musician. Cher. Yes, as in Sonny and Cher. Yeah. Ah. Sonny and Cher, who had the variety show in the 1960s, claims to be the first woman whose belly button appeared regularly on American television. Huh. Wow. Could well be so. Well, I'll tell you what, that is a, that is a fascinating departure from where we are today. I grew up <laughs> in, the Brit- in the Britney Spears era, and needless mm. to say, the belly button was right out there yeah. on national TV for everyone to see. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, no, again, but for a lot of conservative women who live in conservative communities, they're mostly religious, whether they're Christian or Muslim. You know, going and fully exposing yourself to a male glance is not on the cards. Right. And so, you know, wearing a costume that covers you, covers your arms, comes down to at least the knees, um, is still there. And the most, you know, radical part of this then would be the burkini, which is all covering, believe me, all covering. And if you wear one in France on the beach and the Riviera, they will arrest you. Wow. It's taken as an aspect of Muslim culture that should not be on display at a French beach. Really? I had yeah. no idea. That's, that is fascinating. Um, I, I got to ask, uh, shifting uh, attention a little bit, I'm loving this swimwear discussion because it really you really derive a lot of cultural information and beach use information based on what folks are wearing. It makes a lot of sense. Um I know from the 60s, well, I know from the Beach Boys, I should say more uh, uh, precisely, who were writing this in the 60s, they described their swimwear as baggies. Yeah. Uh, got my ba- pair of baggies on. Uh, what are baggies? Uh, if you'll be so, and it, it, is that uh, commensurate with modern male wear or has that shifted as well over it's, time? It's a, a set of uh, very loose uh, male shorts. Uh, you know, they come down generally to the knee. You always wear your shirt outside, uh, you know, your, your pants. You don't tuck it in. Uh, but the baggies is just a particular, you know, it's not at that point in the 60s, Bermuda shorts were the appropriate wear for men and women hmm. uh, during the summer. A Bermuda short. But a baggy is longer, baggier. The Bermuda short is sort of tapered a bit for the leg. The baggy is is more open and you know out there. That is great. When does the speedo appear? Oh, it's um, got to be French. It's got to be French. <laughs> I mean, you have Jacques Cousteau in the sixties. Yeah. yeah, of course. Um, really, that's that's the nineties. I think of it as is appearing, and at least in the male groups I go to the beach with. You don't wear a speedo. I mean, you, that's a particular. Don't isn't it only Russians and East Europeans who wear male speedos? <laughs> well, you know, I do. I do. Think, you went to the Ukraine, Tyler. Did you see? Huh. Did you go to the beach? I did. I was in Odessa in right. Ukraine, which, by the way, I've got to say, is a, a a beach community in line with the same trends that we were talking about here, where you've got 
lots of lounge chairs laid out uh, on a small artificially built beach. This would have naturally been kind of a rocky uh, cliff face shoreline, but they've brought in uh, some pretty coarse sand, I will say, and built an artificial beach. Hmm. And uh, I did not see, I was there in September. It was late season, very end of the season. I did not see very many beachgoers, but I also did not see any Speedos on the beach. No, I didn't. Got to say, I'm surprised. Don't know what to tell you. Just didn't people. Were people people swimming? I mean, there were swimmers in the water. I did catch catch some swimmers, um, but, you know, it was, in all truth, when I happened to be in Odessa, it was... After the peak, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't just the banging, right? You know, peak season, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting, and I think what we've wandered into here is a discussion of sort of the moral aspects of of the beach and how it's used as a lens of propriety. You know, what's acceptable to what you're supposed to do? Certainly, when it comes to dress, that's very much a topic. Look, sounds like for well, hundreds of years, it's been an issue at the beach. It's also kind of a lawless zone. I mean, you're you're taking your terrestrial yeah. human body and you're putting it in yeah. the water, and of course, our terrestrial clothing and the way you know yeah. all of our gear, all of our equipment. Yeah, you get we're, good gear that you're accustomed to on land doesn't necessarily work in the water so developing kind of these use specific uh clothings uh and yeah. of yeah. course beyond that uh roy you mentioned uh wetsuits uh that came about I, i'd be curious to know if you did any research uh, onto kind of these more specific recreational lines of clothing but bringing this up to the modern era now i mean there are a thousands of purveyors of you know fishing apparel for coastal fishing and sun stuff that's you know these new bamboo fabrics that are supposed to be really light on your skin and don't absorb uh moisture and all of that did you did you uh research any of that stuff not a lot of it um i was mostly interested uh in the way in which the women's costume evolves, not so much interested in the male costume. And there's a, yeah, I write a bit about that, but uh, the female costume is the one that is most uh, followed because it always has to reflect the social mores. Right. And in a sense, you know, women have to be willing to give up their modesty if they come from a culture where female modesty is significant to go to the beach uh, in a costume that's very, very different from anything they might weigh, wear. I mean, nowadays, you know, women are at home working in the garden with shirts on, slots, you know, T-shirts, uh, very casual, so that, you know, the change that's made to go to the beach is very, very different. So it, it that was always, female costume was always the big deal. And if you got it wrong, you could be arrested. Man, it's just women are arrested, even in Atlantic City, yeah. of not having the appropriate costume and of it's, showing too much flesh. Totally. And I got to point out, it's still not equal. I mean, here we are all these uh, years later. And I, I mean, I don't believe you're allowed to be bare-breasted on most American beaches. I don't believe that that is permissible. That is at least my understanding. It has to be a, a nude beach. I mean, there are now nude beaches nearly everywhere. Here in California, there are a number of them. But no, I, it's not 
you know, whatever is going on in the Riviera stays in the Riviera. Uh, <laughs> hasn't really, at least it hasn't come to California yeah. beaches I've been at that women have been mm-hmm. lying around uh, bare-breasted. I'd, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, you know, the reputation of, of a French beach being a, a nude place. Uh, do you, any idea why that is? Or the origins um, of that? In, in part because the French have really good beaches. There are better beaches in France than there are, say, in Germany. Germans... Uh, the the nudist movement, the naturalist movement in Germany is really big. It's big also in France, but French beaches are much much better. And so the French um, early on developed uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, essentially nude beaches. Um, they are, but the first one is on an island. Uh, is, which is part of the Riviera. But slowly but surely, you know, more and more nude beaches develop in France. It's a, you know, people are free developed resorts as long as they don't, you know, cross the law in any way. Hmm. And the French have been more open to nude beaches. They may not sometimes like what goes on at the beach, but uh, they've been far more open about it. And also the fact that women can, if they want to remove the top of their be- the, you know, costume, they can. Uh, it's just French culture has allowed that. Um, when you look at uh, um, spring break today, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. I noticed during the pandemic uh, over spring break this year, uh, the city of Fort Lauderdale p- p- passed a special ordinances restricting party atmosphere uh they put in uh curfews and uh, tried to uh, dial it back on the alcohol consumption um when you look around america today are you starting to see uh, any trend um of uh in response to spring break and what we all typically think about when we you know or can believe what happens at spring break whether it's true or not um the spring break phenomenon really has been focused more on Florida, uh, or hmm. you know, not the, a California thing. Not no, really a not beach really. thing. Not yeah. really a beach thing. You know, uh, yes, people do, but it just is not the same scene where you've got thousands. It would be like Havasu, Panama City, or Fort Lauderdale, South Pod, and, right here in Texas. Yeah, and so it's. You know, communities have to come to grips with what it means in terms of having hundreds, if not thousands, of drunken youngsters around. And of course, now the beach, <laughs> the spring beach scene is also down to Cancun, uh, yeah. other places in Mexico or the Caribbean. Thailand. Still, Florida leads in this. And a lot of Florida communities have learned that it's not worth it, you know, if you're really a beach community and you, you know, the merchants, everybody involved makes their money during the summer when everybody comes to the beach, uh, suddenly you've got this expanded season because Easter week goes on for about six weeks because it's varied from state to state when people get out almost college by college. Right. And, you know, you have to decide do you really want to be a part of that? Because 
There have been some instances in recent years of guns, rape, uh, unpleasantness. I mean, most kids go to have a good time and that's what they have. But there's also been an element of rowdiness that uh, hmm. the local police forces don't like. Huh. Interesting. So maybe we're seeing a corner turned. I don't know. I don't know either. Uh, it'll be hard to stop spring break. Uh, you may tame it, but it'd be hard to stop it, I think. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, one thing's for certain. The lure of the beach is, well, maybe changing. Maybe our attitudes have shifted over the past 102,000 years, Peter, <laughs> from going down to gather mussels and uh, maybe uh-huh. a more a therapeutic. Uh, well, you know, mm-hmm. in the early days, coming down for as a food source coming down as maybe a way to uh, navigate a little bit around an area uh, all the way to the Romans, all the way up to the, a, a dip in a machine <laughs> that dips you in the water, all the way up to spring break in the yeah. present. Um, the yeah. lure has been there the whole time, although Barely. gotta say uh, our activities and our attitudes toward the beach have definitely changed. And I think to answer your question, they are continuing to change. Uh, and I think what's really coming into the picture now, and I, I think we see this with the surfing piece, is and, and the kind of that active recreational piece is more the ecotourism. Hmm. Uh, being in the environment, being in yeah. a yeah. natural no, wild place, and that the coast and the beach can offer that to you. Huh in a uh, really raw and enriching way, whether you're in Hawaii or Florida or anywhere. It's, it's, yeah. and frankly, I would even say, even on those uh, cobbly beaches over there in, in oh, Scotland, yeah. Roy, I, I, there's something really, I think, uh, you know, it's a different experience. I, I'm not saying I'm putting on my baggies and jumping in for a wave, uh, but yeah. uh, maybe omit, omit that beach from the surf and safari song if I'm a beach boy, but Still a beautiful place to go. Great place to forage for food uh, and, you know, get some wild stuff off the beach. I think it's just very cool. Hey, look, before we go, I want to ask you, Roy, I know you said you don't do any more pirate talks, but uh, you did write a book uh, about pirates. And I understand that you're an expert on uh, Caribbean history. Would you introduce our audience to this book and a little bit about uh, about your your research into that field? Uh, very quickly, the book is entitled Captain Kidd and the War Against the Pirates. And it deals with uh, Captain Kidd as a central figure, but I use him as a way of talking about uh, early modern piracy, which is quite expensive, and the book goes to the Indian Ocean, besides the Caribbean. I got into this simply because I had written a book about New York, and New York City for a while is, in fact, a bit of a pirate base. I discovered some things, wow. uh, and at the beginning, I preferred to give talks about piracy than I did about New York in the 17th century. And so the book grew out of that, and Again, if you're interested in the way you know people organize their life in difficult circumstances, which is you know most often than not, pirates are living a fairly tough life. Uh, I you know I'm attracted to that, and so the book is about what pirates did, when they did it, 
and why it is that finally, particularly England, turns against the pirates and starts to hunt them down. And the consequences of that are the people we know as buccaneers are off the scene by the 1720s. It's not that piracy ends, a particular kind of piracy ends, but you know, piracy is with us today. I mean, it's just you hold up anybody on a, a boat with a gun, you're committing piracy, yeah, and yeah. it's done all the time. Well, that's two pretty good topics, I think, Tyler, for an American Shoreline podcast, uh, pirates and beaches. The lure, the lure of the beach. I have to feel like uh, there's a part of the lure of the beach that is, in fact, the pirate lure as well. It's that <laughs> It's that lawless... You're in the gray zone, you know, the, the Romans having to pick their, their area because yeah. of coastal raids. I'm telling you, uh, there's a link. There's a link. There's a link. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is, it is Robert Ritchie, the author of Allure, The Lure of the Beach, A Global History, a great book out from the University of California Press, published in 2021, just came out, uh, featured on the front page of Coastal News Today yesterday, by the way. And uh, also the author of Captain Kidd and the War War Against against the Pirates. And the War Against the Pirates, two great books. Uh, uh, Dr. Ritchie, thanks a lot for talking to us about your your work and your research uh, for our audience on the American Shoreline Podcast. My pleasure, and I'd be happy to come back and talk about pirates. That's awesome. We'd love to have you, Roy. Uh, And everyone, have a great week.